Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 82, Commedia dell'arte, a selection of scenarios. Last time, I took you through the detail of the stock characters used in Commedia dell'arte with a look at their names, their characteristics, behaviours and the costumes. The characters may have been used in every play over and over again until they became completely familiar and, indeed, embedded themselves in the cultural European consciousness. But the plays themselves and the plots employed to allow the characters to show off their various attributes were more varied than you might imagine. Mostly they were comedies, but, as we shall see, not always. The first record of a Commedia dell'arte scenario comes from 1568, and it's an irony that has been well noted that for an art that put professional into its very name, this scenario was performed by a mixed troupe of amateur actors supported by two professional musicians. In all other respects, this scenario, as it is reported by an observer of the performance, closely follows the style and precepts of the professional Commedia dell'arte, so it is generally agreed that it's fair to give this performance the name. However, perhaps more to the point than any tight definition, it suggests that by 1568 the professional form was well enough known to be copied by amateurs for a special occasion that occasion being the wedding of the Duke of Bavaria, which was held in Munich. So this was prepared as a court piece, and a light entertainment, and although we can see by the content and the use of masks, the characters and the style, that this is Commedia dell'arte, it has two particular points of uniqueness. There are no women in the troupe, and the scenario doesn't reappear in the repertory of any professional troupe subsequent to this performance. The details of the play were recorded by Massimo Trogiano, the court choirmaster, who created the plot. He recalls how the plot outline of this improvised comedy was thought out in a day, as he put it. He says that there were ten parts in the play, and that the parts were divided so as to give him, Massimo, three of them, namely the prologue, Polidoro, the young lover, and the Spanish Desperato. The other professional musician in the troupe, one Orlando de Lasso, played Pantalone, referred to here often as the Magnifico. The other parts, each played by a dedicated actor, were the Zani, or the comic servant, the young hero's servant, the Spanish captain's servant, and the courtesan Camilla, who was played by the Marquis de Masalpina, a member of a grand family who held lands that had recently been raised to the status of a duchy by the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II. Then there's her servant and a French servant to complete the company. To return to our comedy, continues the narrative, when the prologue had been spoken, Orlando sung a sweet madrigal, while Massimo, who had played in the prologue as a peasant, took off his rustic garments. He returned to the stage as Polidoro, all in crimson velvet with broad cuffs, trimmed top and bottom with gold, and with a black velvet cap lined with the finest sables. He came out with his servant, praising fortune and boasting that he lived happily and content in the kingdom of love. Then the French servant of Fabritio, his brother, enters, newly arrived from the country, to summon him with a letter full of the worst news. Polidoro reads it aloud, and having finished the letter and with great sighs, he has Camilla called. And after having told her about his necessity of going away and kissing her, he takes his leave. Then, from the other side of the stage, entered Orlando, dressed as a magnifico, with a doublet of crimson satin, 
Venetian hose of scarlet, a black mantle long enough to touch the ground, and a mask which, just to see, made everybody laugh. Polidoro entered with a lute in his hand, playing and singing. Who passes through this street and does not sigh, O oh, fortunate he! After repeating this twice, he stopped playing and began to complain of love and say, O oh, poor Pantaloni, who cannot pass through this street without sending sighs through the air and tears to the pavement of the earth? And everyone began to laugh as much as possible, so that as long as Pantaloni was on stage, nothing was heard but laughter. All the more that after Pantaloni had made his long discourse with himself and his Camilla. Zane appeared. He had not seen his Pantaloni for years, and, not recognising him as he walked distraught, gave him a great shove, and after quarrelling they at last knew each other. Then, for joy, Zane took his master on his shoulders, and they turned like a windmill, and then Pantaloni did the same to Zane. And both fell on the ground then, and they rose and they talked a little. Zane asked his master how his old mistress was, Pantaloni's wife, and hears that she is dead. And then Pantalone begins to howl like wolves and Zane to shed tears, thinking on the macaroni and mincemeat that she used to give him to eat. Then, leaving off their tears, they return to cheerfulness, and the master bade Zane to carry some pullets to his beloved Camilla. Zane promised to speak for him, but in fact did the contrary. Exit Pantalone, and Zane went to the house of Camilla, all trembling. Camilla fell in love with Zani, and this is not astonishing, for women often leave the better to turn to the worse, and made him enter her house. And here there was music by five viola da gamba, and as many voices. You can imagine whether or not this act was amusing, and I swear by heaven that at all the comedies I have seen I have never heard such hearty laughter. In the second act, Pantalone appeared to be wondering why the Zani was so slow in bringing an answer from Camilla. Then Zane came out with a letter from Camilla, saying that if he desired her love, he must disguise himself in the way that Zane would explain to him orally. At this joyful news, Pantaloni and Zane went to exchange clothes, and the Spaniard entered with his heart drowned in a sea called jealousy, and told his servant of his great and valorous deeds and of the many souls, hundreds and hundreds, he had sent to Charon's boat, and that now a wretched woman had taken his mighty heart away. Compelled by love, he goes to salute his Camilla and begs her to let him enter her house. Camilla, with flattering words, accepts a necklace from his hand and promises him fair for the evening. He goes away content and expectant. Then Pantaloni and Zane come dressed in each other's clothes, and after they have entertained a while by teaching how to act the Magnifico, they entered Camilla's house. Here there was music by four voices, two lutes and other instruments. In the third and last act, Polidoro, who kept Camilla, returns from the country, goes into the house and finds Pantalone in poor clothes. Asking him who he is and being answered a porter and that the Lady Camilla wished him to carry a box to Sister Dolorisi at the Sant Colado convent, Polidoro believes this and says he'd better take the box soon. Pantalone, on account of his age, is not able to lift it and after a little talk says that he is a gentleman. Polidoro, disgusted at this, took a stick and belaboured him so hard to the sound of loud laughter of the spectators that he would remember the blows for a very long time. Poor Pantalone ran out and Polidoro entered the house, very angry with Camilla. Zane, who had heard the noise from the blows, found a sack and got into it to hide. Camilla's maid drives him out onto the stage, tied up in the sack. 
The Spaniard, furious at not having received the promised summons from Camilla, is about to leave and, raising his eyes to heaven, is beginning to say, alas, with sighs, when he stumbles onto the sack containing the miserable Zani, and both he and his servant fell full length. Rising in a great wrath, he untied the sack, shook out the Zani, and with a stick dusted his bones very thoroughly, and the Zani fleeing and the Spaniard and his servant after him as they left the stage. Polidoro with his servant and Camilla with her maid then entered. Polidoro, saying to Camilla that she ought to marry, because he, for an excellent reason, did not wish to support her any longer. She, after saying no so many times, finally resolves to do as Polidoro commands her, and so agrees to take Zani for her lawful husband. During this discourse, Pantalone comes in armed with firearms, and Zane, who has two aquibuses on his shoulders, eight daggers in his belt, a buckler and a sword in his hand, and a rusty helmet on his head. Both are seeking those who beat them. After making several thrusts which seemed to show that thus they would slay their enemies, Camilla bids Polidoro speak to Pantalone. He points out Zane to the old man, and Zane, frightened, motions his master to begin the fight. Pantalone does the same to Zani. Polidoro understands the cause they have and calls by his name, O Signor Pantalone, and puts his hand to his sword. Zani does not know which of his weapons to take out first, and so there is a ridiculous hurly-burly. This lasted a while until finally Camilla held Pantalone and her maid the Zani, and peace was made, and Camilla was given to the Zani as his wife. In honour of the wedding, they danced an Italian dance, and Massimo, for Master Orlando, begged pardon of the comedy if it fell short of the merit of their most serene highnesses. So the conventional apologetic and complimentary epilogue ends this simple farce. It was clearly designed to entertain and nothing more. Even though we don't have the details on the ruminations of love and happiness, I think it's safe to say that there was no philosophising here, no thoughtful poetry on the meaning of happiness. At the very most, it's possible that the discussion of love and happiness was prompted by some of the current discussions amongst the artistic circles, but this is really tenuous stuff. The play quite obviously has one foot in Roman comedy and the other in rustic farce, with perhaps a nod to the more literary plays of the time in the aforementioned discussions. But safe to assume that comedy was the key, and there was a lot of stage business and physical comedy around the lifting of the trunk for the convent, the arrival of the Zane ridiculously tooled up for a fight, and the windmill or acrobatics that are all briefly mentioned. There is little concern for reality in the play, there seems no reason why Zane ends up in the sack or why Pantalone, for all of his acrobatics, is too infirm to lift the trunk. The business was the heart of Commedia dell'arte, and it was all silly fun, and by this report, the audience lapped it up. It was a grander wedding that provided us with another surviving scenario. On this occasion, the marriage of Ferdinand I de Medici to Christina of Lorraine in May 1589. A contemporary account describes the play as a comedy by Isabella Andrini of the company of the Galossi and attended by the Grand Duke. Isabella and her fellow players of the Galossi are significant figures in the history of the Commedia dell'arte, as it has come to us, and I'll be telling you more about them in the next episode. But for the moment, I'll just note that the contemporary comment was that the piece was played superlatively well with genius and eloquence by Isabella. 
There is a bit of doubt as to if the scenario we have preserved is in fact the piece that was played at the wedding, but on balance it seems likely that it is. The title of the performed piece and the preserved scenario is Madness. And the dating, given the known movements of Isabella Andrini, makes it plausible that it's the same play. It is a more elaborate piece than that created by the choir master Massimo and presumably benefited from the grander setting of the Medici court and access to props from the Medici treasury and clothes and costumes from their wardrobes. It seems that it was common practice for the troops to make such borrowings when they were performing for the great and the good. Here's a brief description of the scenario. The story is a romance. We hear in the prologue that Horatio, the young lover character, while on his way to marry Flaminia, was captured by the Turks and taken as a slave to Algiers, leaving Flaminia to retire to a convent. In Algiers, the wife of Horatio's master falls in love with the young captive in an obvious echo of the biblical story of Joseph's captivity in Egypt. She agreed to convert to Christianity if he would flee with her and marry. She arranged the escape, taking her small son with them. There were various adventures during which the lady's husband and son were killed and eventually Horatio brings her to Genoa, where she is baptised under the name of Isabella and where the play opens before the couple have been married. In the first act we hear from Flavio that Flaminia has left the convent and that he loves her, but she is cold to him. Pedrolino repeats the facts about Isabella and Horatio which the prologue had previously summed up adding his opinion that the pair are living in sin. The next scene is a passionate conversation between Isabella and Horatio, where she accuses him of unfaithfulness in not marrying her as he had vowed to do. He promises to fulfil his oath very soon. Isabella withdraws, making an opportunity for an exchange of the noblest sentiments by Flaminia and Horatio, a confession of mutual love and mutual encouragement to prefer honour to love. After their tearful parting, the captain enters with Harlequin, looking for a Christianised Turkish woman. The pair go to the inn, where the captain chats up the innkeeper's sweetheart, fights with one of her admirers, and has a bucket of water thrown over him from a window by a servant. The act closes with the revelation of Pantalone's determination that his son Horatio will no longer live in sin, but shall marry Isabella at once. When Horatio hears this, he goes into a violent rage. He argues with Flavio, Flaminia's other admirer. Isabella looks on and weeps. As the second act opens, Isabella is telling Flaminia that she would rather die than force Horatio to marry her. The two ladies then vow friendship and compliment each other until Pedrolino interrupts them with an account of a duel between Horatio and Flavio that has just taken place. Just as he finishes, the captain enters, recognises Isabella as the woman that he is seeking and tells Flaminia her story. As he flirts with Flaminia, Horatio arrives and finds a second fight on his hands. Peace on the stage is only restored after much noisy confusion and Flavio has a chance to urge Pantalone against postponing Horatio's marriage any longer. Isabella listens until she appears to go mad and assaults Flavio with a knife. He falls hurt and bleeding and she tells Horatio that she has revenged her wrong. What she doesn't realise is that she has left Flavio alive and he is taking advantage of his wound to press his claim on Flaminia. Very soon Horatio leads Isabella out again, caressing her and assuring her that he does not care for Flaminia and eventually sends her away quite consoled. 
He lingers on the stage to inform the audience in a soliloquy that he remains true to Flaminia in his heart, but that his honour has to be the master of all that he does. Flaminia interrupts these fine words by asking sarcastically when he means to marry his Amazon. He is furious, as is Isabella, who is listening from the window above. Apparently maintaining his line on the supremacy of honour, Horatio declares that he will marry Isabella to fulfil his vow, but then adds that he will then remove her by trickery or poison. On hearing that, Isabella really goes mad, and raving against love and fortune, she tears her clothes and throws them about before rushing off in despair. In Act 3, Horatio and Flaminia are overcome by remorse at the wrong that they have done to Isabella, and they join with Pantalone in begging the good doctor Graciano to try to cure her. The madwoman is brought in tightly bound and doing insane tricks. Pantalone accuses Horatio of having caused this by his love of Flaminia, and the young man despairs. The captain is greeted by Isabella as one of the constellations, and is then violently beaten by her. The doctor enters with Hellebore to cure Isabella's insanity, but she frightens him by suddenly appearing and bidding him to be quiet while Jove sneezes. To Horatio's greeting, You are here, my soul, she learnedly responds, The soul, according to Aristotle, is the spirit. And she continues with many other absurdities of a semi-academic nature, until she is seized and bound and made to drink the doctor's dose of Hellebore. She soon comes to herself, receives Horatio's penitent apologies and agrees to marry him at once. Flavio is immediately betrothed to Flaminia, as are all the other characters one to another, so the play can end properly. Most of the surviving Commedia dell'arte comedies are like this one. Comedies of intrigue that, over time, became more and more developed. Just comparing those two pieces, it's clear that in Madness, the slightly later piece, the relations between the characters are more carefully thought out. Once again, there is a dependence on the Roman model, albeit much updated, and with a nod to the written plays of the time in the large romantic element in this and in most of the plots. A good deal of talk about love and fortune in dialogue is common throughout. However, we have to remember that both these examples are from specifically created pieces for very special occasions, so we have to assume that the subject and possibly the style was adapted for that reason. The players must have had the sensibilities of their patrons in mind when deciding on which scenario to adapt for the occasion. They surely still included the ever-popular stage business, acrobatics and slapstick comedy that were their main attraction, but probably incorporated a more serious tone and theme in deference to their more supposedly erudite audience. For plays that were performed in the street or at the fair, it seems more likely that the comedy and the acrobatics were pushed to the fore and the plots reduced to the very basic romantic story where some jeopardy for the young lovers has to be overcome. And I should mention here how these scenarios have come to us. In 1611, Flaminio Scala, an actor, writer and leader of the Galossi troupe, published a collection of theatrical scenarios. Of the 50 scenarios in the collection, one is considered a tragedy and nine are pastoral fantasies. The remaining 40 are comedies, and it is this collection that makes up much of what we know about Commedia dell'arte. In total, there are something like 750 preserved Commedia dell'arte scenarios in various states of completeness, and many are from the later 17th century. 
Scala's 40 comedies are undoubtedly only a fraction of what was actually produced and performed in Italy at the time. And as I've already suggested, it may not be a very representative selection. We just don't know. That view is further complicated because the collection does not include dialogue, but only describes the detail of the physical actions taken by the actors when in character. That would seem to be a nod to the semi-improvisational nature of Commedia dell'arte, but it's also suggested that the collection was possibly put together with both actors and a reading public in mind, so it is more description rather than dialogue-driven. The setting of all 40 comedies certainly shows the literary influence of the Roman tradition. They are all street scenes, calling for the same simple stage arrangements. When the plays were given in private before wealthy patrons, these settings, canvases painted in perspective, would often be done by the best artists. There were almost always three main houses, one on each side and one at the back, leaving two streets as well as house doors for entrances and exits. The middle house, and possibly the two on the others as well, had balconies, from which insults could be exchanged, vows solemnly taken, from which Harlequin could leap and the young lover climb. Props for these comedies were often as simple as the settings, with the only absolute requirements being clubs for beating and formidable weapons for keeping the Zani and the captain in order, and for helping the lovers execute their vengeance on the old men. The preserved scenarios occasionally list various other necessary things, such as an inn sign, a long bench for the charlatan, with a handsome trunk for his wares, a lute, two bottles of wine, a pair of shoes, a sharp knife, a chest for food, a rotating spit, many lanterns and nightshirts, a woman's dress for harlequin, a garden on one side of the stage, a small table with two seats, a chest with many letters in it, and a slave's habit for pantalone. All of these articles were perfectly everyday items, so that even the poorest companies could have them in their possession, or borrow them as required. As mentioned, when required, companies were known to borrow from their hosts for these and more extravagant props. Scala's collection also shows reworkings of classical themes. For example, once again, we have the Monachmus brothers. This is a particularly good example of how the freedom given by just recording outlined action favoured farcical treatment of plot material. The heroine, Isabella, is the wife of Captain Spavento, who has been away for six years in search of his lost brother, also a captain. The play opens on the day of Spavento's return from his unsuccessful quest. But all is not well at home. In discourse with her maid and her neighbour Flaminia, Isabella admits that in her husband's absence she has fallen in love with Horatio. Flaminia also has designs on Horatio and the ladies are soon engaged in a verbal spat that develops into a full-on fistfight. Horatio enters in time to prevent the ladies doing each other real harm but gets accused of infidelity for his pains. Summoned by all the noise, the fathers of the ladies, Pantalone and Graziano, try to help and both women start to behave as if they've gone mad or are bewitched. Spavento goes into the inn in disguise with his servant Harlequin to find out what his wife has really been up to, and falls in with the innkeeper Pedrolino. In the meantime, Horatio is fretting about how he can regain Flaminia's affections, and his quandary is not helped when Isabella's servant tells him how her mistress is literally mad for his love. She persuades him to disguise as a doctor and visit her. 
He has just donned his elaborate disguise when a now super-jealous Flaminia enters and sees straight through him and reveals him. The second act of the play is taken up with different sets of characters meeting at the inn, partly overhearing each other's conversations and misunderstanding the situation. Harlequin plays his role in spreading the misinformation between the characters, but it is done with innocent confidence rather than with any malice. But the act still ends up with him at the sharp end of a good beating. Horatio and Flaminia manage at last to understand how all the confusion has come about and beg Pantalone for his permission to marry. The brother of Captain Spavento miraculously appears and there is much comic business over the collection of rents due to the captain and more misunderstandings as first one brother appears and then the other but never together and they are obviously mistaken for each other. Isabella, miraculously cured, and her servant enter and when they see her husband's brother they throw themselves at his feet asking for his forgiveness. He happily raises them up as he is unaware of their sin, but seeing this embrace his brother rushes on ready for a duel over his honour. However, all is resolved when he recognises his brother and forgives his wife. So it's a very slight adaptation of the original that just uses its basic framework and where the heart of the play is the misunderstandings and the comic stage business. There is no attempt to explain the brother's disappearance or reappearance and no one seems bothered, Scala included. This is all about the minutiae of the interaction between the characters within the plot such as it is. If the last nine plays in the Scala collection were performed for the general public, then they mark an increase in sophistication of presentation that suggests that some of the troops at least had a degree of financial independence. The one tragedy in the set of plays, a piece called The Mad Princess, calls for an extravagant set, including a very beautiful ship, and the musical interlude at the end of the play calls for rapid scene changes that appear to call for the type of stage equipment used in the theatres, not the temporary stages. The same play also asked for effects of lightning and an earthquake. Another play in the collection represents a popular form at the time where three individual pieces were presented as a set with at the most only a very thin connection between them. In this case, the setting is the Peloponnese, suggesting Sparta, but the classical illusion is just that. There is no sense of any academic rigour here. The first part is a comedy, a farce in fact. An old Spartan father, called Pantalone, of course, ignoring his daughter's love for the young Horatio, son to the doctor Graziano, promises her hand to one of Orestes' captains. The soldier, however, is soon sent to the wars, and when he returns, he finds that Pantalone has been prevailed upon to betroth his daughter to Horatio. Scenes of jealousy and misunderstanding follow, but are cleared up so that a triple wedding can close the act. Then comes a pastoral interlude, built on a very tangled love plot. I was going to summarise this, but honestly, it's all too complicated and silly to make any sense of in a truncated form. Enough to say that it's also set in Spartan Arcadia, where Philidae, daughter of Pedrolino, butler to Pantalone, fakes death so that she can leave with her lover. Having been placed in the tomb, she escapes disguised as a shepherd, only to find that her lover has been pretty faithless. There's a lot of disguise and chasing around the wood and groves and misunderstandings of identity that ends in a misfired arrow causing a reconciliation that, lo and behold, leads to a wedding. 
Apart from the characters being the usual suspects, there is one scene of stage business that really picks it out as pure commedia dell'arte. A cunning shepherdess has caught two lazy cow herders, and as a punishment for their lax attention, has bound them back to back. They complain of hunger, and she provides them with a dish of macaroni, and then enjoys watching them as they both attempt to eat it from the plate, with, of course, a lot of comic acrobatics. The last part of this three-in-one play deals with Spartan royalty, and the love of King Orestes for Alita, daughter of his guest, Baramante, King of Mycenae. And with the murder of his guest, and with the revenge taken for the deed by Orente, king of Athens. A slight connection of the three parts is made by the appearance of Pantalone and the doctor Graziano as ambassadors to the Athenian monarch, who present him with a silver basin containing Baramante's head. Alita doesn't long outlive her father, as she chooses death rather than dishonourable love. And we see her decapitated, borne across the stage on a car of justice while Pantalone and Graziano, like a Greek chorus, discourse on the swift turn of fortune. The play ends with the messenger's account of the death of King Orestes in battle, and the people's joyful proclamation of the ancient liberty of Sparta, from then on a republic. It's a slightly strange piece, but perhaps tells us something of the diversity that existed within Commedia dell'arte. Clearly, tragedies were part of the offering, but we have to assume were less popular than comedies and pastels, given the small number preserved in comparison to the comedies in particular. The popular character types and names are preserved even in tragedy, and it seems likely that some of the comic stage business and dialogue would have been included to lighten the mood of the tragedy at the right moment. But here we also see a nod to Greek tragedy and the chorus. The problem is that we don't know the context of the performance or the reasons for Scala selecting this piece for his collection above others, so it's difficult to draw many firm conclusions. During the 17th century, plays like these hybrids became increasingly numerous, proving popular as they combined in a particularly intimate way popular and literary elements. The mythic folk motifs of disguise, transformation, death and resurrection, the use of blood as a means of restoration of life and the humanisation of animals for dramatic purposes are quite recognisable, even when they are thoroughly absorbed into the conventions of the day. But Scala was a successful actor and writer and it is perhaps no surprise that he also incorporates the best theatrical techniques of his day, which he no doubt felt bound to maintain. The idealistic conception of love and honour, the pastoral and heroic machinery and the classic legacy of myth and theory are just as evident as the popular material. For a form that is even today still identified by some very precise characters and costumes and behaviours, the Commedia dell'arte is in fact surprisingly diverse in its subject matter. Comedy of the slapstick, acrobatic and frankly crude nature was its mainstay but the troops also took the style and stock characters and adapted them to pastoral entertainments and even tragedies. As the form progressed through the 17th century, some productions became extravaganzas and as lavish as the other courtly entertainments that they competed against. But they also remained an entertainment for the common man. In its day, Commedia dell'arte was the preeminent go-to popular entertainment. Unfortunately, the fact that it was an improvised form means that we do not have a full record of it, far from it, in fact, and there are many gaps that we have to fill with supposition and our own imagination. 
but there is enough of a framework there for us to do that with some confidence. And when in doubt, an extended joke about a hungry man looking for food, some banter at cross-purposes, a beating with a slapstick or an acrobatic tumble never goes amiss. Next time, as promised, I'll be looking at the people who performed the Commedia dell'arte. There are a few preserved facts and some stories about the professional troops and the individuals who dominated them, including some of the earliest accounts of named women performing on stage. So we will be digging a bit deeper into the lives and personalities of people like Flaminio Scala, Isabella Andrini, the Golossi Troupe and others. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group to keep up to date with what's coming up next. And just as a reminder, I put the episodes on YouTube if that's a good place for you to access the podcast. On Patreon, I have recently updated the site with transcripts from some of the members' episodes and continue to add audio episodes taken from Konstantin Stanislavski's autobiography, My Life in Art. If you'd like to hear that and all the other content posted on Patreon, you can get instant access for a small monthly fee. I've put a link in the show notes. Thanks again for your support in whatever form, and I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 